hon. What you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh, host of the podcast, Mating Matters. I believe nearly every human behavior is motivated by a desire for love. I love the romantic endings. I believe in happy endings. Sex. Sometimes find myself looking for reasons to have sex. Or to hedge your reproductive odds. I've always been very active. In Mating Matters, we explore how our ancient brains are interacting with the modern world. Listen to Mating Matters on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For the week of Thursday, June 4th, America has moved from one national crisis to another. But while COVID-19 struck the nation quickly and arguably caught many of us off guard, the uprisings happening across the country this week are the result of long-simmering and long-ignored issues of racial injustice. This new crisis is, in fact, an old one as well, one that many of us have seen coming for years, and many would also argue is long overdue. I'm Clay Aiken. This week, Politicon has assembled a very special panel of four returning guests for a discussion the nation desperately needs to hear. Shermichael Singleton is a political strategist and writer who worked on the presidential campaigns of Newt Gingrich and Mitt Romney. Torre is a TV host and a writer for almost every major news publication in America. Amy Holmes is a conservative commentator and writer and host for Develtavoka. Michael Steele is the former lieutenant governor of the state of Maryland and the former chairman of the Republican National Committee. This week, a sober and thoughtful discussion, answers to some very difficult questions, and a real effort to find out how the heck are we going to get along. Thank you all for being here this week. It has been, it has been quite, a, quite a heavy week, I think, for all of us to, to watch what's been going on in our country. Um, and it's it's interesting because last week's episode, we had uh, a discussion that that only touched for a very brief moment on George Floyd, and it it did turn into this really heated almost argument about um, race and and the role of race in this current administration, and and it it kind of turned into such an argument that that we made a very concerted effort this week. To, to invite the four of you back because, you know, I want to, we want to turn the volume down a little bit and we want to listen to what this country probably needs, has needed to listen to for 60 years and not clearly not done a good job on. Um, but, you know, the hope with this panel, and I think what, what I'm excited about tonight is the fact that we are going to be able to kind of have a discussion that has disagreements without arguing and really hopefully, you know, get to the meat of some of these issues that are facing us all right now. And I, instead of really even asking a question, I kind of just want to throw the conversation over to, you know, let's, we'll start with Torre. Uh, you're right in Brooklyn. And I think you were out earlier tonight, Wednesday night, um, protesting and just give us an idea of what, what's going on in New York right now and why you were saying it's so important for you to be able to be a part of what's happening in your city. Yeah, I mean, there's protests going on all over New York. I was at the Barclays Center. There weren't that many people there at 6 p.m. when I got there. And then a huge group came up that had been marching up from Bay Ridge. And suddenly it was a couple thousand people. 
And I just saw on Twitter that they're now marching up Flatbush Avenue. And it has been incredibly cathartic for me to be part of these large crowds of people who are shutting down streets and marching and chanting and talking about Black Lives Matter and talking about their and expressing their anger about what has happened, uh, not just with George Floyd, but with policing in general in America um, and having a having an outlet to express that. I mean, there is something really empowering in shutting down a street um, and being with thousands of other people and doing that. And, you know, the first, I've been out every day since Friday. And, you know, before I went out, I had a whole conversation myself about the risk of getting Corona. I haven't been around a group of people in several months. Um, and I said, you know, this moment is too important to stay home. Um, and, you know, even the moments when I have been afraid uh, of police violence, which has been much more of a fear, which has been much more of a reality, much more of a possibility than violence from any other uh, form, direction. Um, I still had to stay as long as I could because it's so important to lend our voices. We need an entirely new conversation with the police. And it does not include kneeling with them. That gesture is disgusting um, and empty, especially in a moment when we are protesting against a cop killing somebody with their knee. We don't need to be holding hands with them. We need a new contract that polices police behavior, that sets standards on the use of force, that outlaws chokeholds, that creates a duty to intervene when officers see other officers going too far, breaking law, being overaggressive. These sorts of controls on police behavior uh, is what we really need and not some sort of kumbaya, we all need to understand each other. Um, well, I, I, I definitely want to get to some of those specifics too, but I, Amy, you're in New York also. What is what is that, what has it been like to be in New York this week? Um, and, and what has, I mean, this has just been a really heavy week. What has it felt like for you? It certainly has. Uh, you know, the last time we spoke, a, a month ago, we were discussing how New York was quiet as a tomb. Well, now it's cacophony, and I live in Midtown, not far from where the looting was going on at Herald Square. And Monday night, I had my window open, you know, trying to get some fresh air in my apartment. And it was cacophony. Uh, sirens, fire trucks, helicopters, hours and hours and hours. And it felt like, you know, a city under siege. Fortunately, there were no sounds of bullets or, you know, people yelling, people in distress. Uh, but, it, you know, it was surreal, a very surreal uh, feeling. Uh, something that I have found to be cathartic is going on social media, on Twitter, and having conversations uh, with people there. And, you know, I'll, I'll confess, most of my Twitter followers tend to be conservative-leaning, and it's been really heartening for me, actually, to see the uh, solidarity and unanimity of opinion about the tragedy that befell George Floyd, the uh, behavior of those police officers, and the problem of police brutality uh, directed at members of the African-American community. And it seems that this is a moment where, uh, you know, 
people are willing to listen, to look. I think the, the you know, George, Flo George Floyd's uh, death, his murder being on video and eight minutes long was so powerful that people could not look away. And it's not a partisan issue. It's, you know, it's not left versus right. It's about humanity and what, you know, the right thing to do, which also means looking deeper at the problem of police brutality in, you know, against African Americans and what can be done to try to, uh, to stop that. I mean, Ture mentioned a number of things. Uh, you can look at uh, libertarians who have been, you know, injecting some of their own policy prescriptions, one of them being uh, the issue of qualified immunity. And this makes it nearly impossible for victims of police brutality to sue police officers. And interestingly enough, uh, Supreme Court Justices Clarence Thomas, you know, you could say on the far right, and Sonia Sotomayor on the far left, they both oppose qualified qualified immunity as having no historical basis, no basis in the Constitution, something that needs to be revisited, and as another tool of trying to stop police brutality. Uh, Michael Steele, what, what are you seeing in, uh, in Maryland, and, and what, what is your general take on how, how much has gone on this week and how effective it has been and who it's been effective for um, and what more needs to be done to make it more effective? Well, I'll just start with the, um, the Maryland piece. Certainly, um, you know, Freddie Gray is, is, is deeply rooted in memory here. And um, I remember just a few days ago, someone saying they were surprised at the, the lack of sort of volatile response from the city of Baltimore. And, I, and my response was because they've been in that room before and they know it well. Um, and, and they share in that anguish and that pain um, just because they're not, you know, at the same decibel level as we may see in you know, New York or uh, in Minneapolis. Um, that pain was very real and has been very real. There's also not a sense of resignation, but a sense of, okay, here we go again, a sense of um, they still don't get it. They still see my son as uh, an object to be scorned, uh, to not be trusted. They still see my community um, as a problem. Um, and I think that those attitudes uh, are reflected on the streets across the country, rightly so. I think that uh, African-Americans um, have had enough. Mothers are tired of weeping over their sons' bodies. Brothers are tired of visiting their, their brothers in jail. Fathers are tired of watching uh, their daughters uh, and family members treated in a manner uh, that lacks respect. And I think that this, this, this moment um, captured by the knee on the neck, uh, and I tweeted this, this quote of, of, uh, of Malcolm X out uh, that, that you know, talks about you know, my anger, my frustration is in response to that knee on my neck. Um, and, and I think it's important for white folks to understand that. 
and to stop dancing around the core and the heart of what's what has been a 400 year saga. Uh, this is not something that just blew up because of what Officer uh, Colvin did to George Floyd or what happened to Freddie Gray or what happened to Trayvon Martin um, or Breonna Taylor. This is what happened to our parents, our grandparents, our great grandparents and all those that came ashore in 1619, that conversation has not been had yet. So, you know, I still see white folks shocked when I tell them, you have to tell my son that when they go out in public and hang with your kid, that, you know, the relationship between them and the cop is a very different one. And they're like, well, what do you mean? Because we've not had that conversation yet. So I, I think that this this opportunity is here for us to begin to peel back the scab uh, that's been sitting there in front of our eyes for 400 years and begin to have that conversation. I think Torrey's analysis and, and assessment of what's out there on the street is is real. And you've got to put context to that. It's just, I mean, you know, the sideshow is the looting and the, and all of that. We we know that in our community. We know that. We know how that plays out. Yeah, there's an there's an idiot in every bunch, and some of them are imported. We get it. We're not. We haven't lost sight of the underlying argument, the underlying case that needs to be made. Um, and we don't want folks to get distracted from that. So I think you know, from Baltimore to Minneapolis from Minneapolis to New York, from New York to, uh, you know, Las Vegas, Nevada, wherever, wherever these things occur, uh, the community says the same thing. Are you ready to talk about this now? Sure, Michael. Yeah, you know, Clay, I, I think um, as a young African-American male, I mean, this is something that I think about often. And it's interesting about this. I, I still have one great-grandparent still alive, my great-grandmother, who's almost 100 years old. And her and I spoke about this a week ago. And she said something that was very unique to me. And she said, you know, I've almost lived a century. I've seen the first black president. I've seen a lot of amazing things. She said, but I really thought at some point we would be beyond this, meaning police brutality, meaning racism, prejudice, stereotypes that are cast against African-Americans, particularly African-American men. And I thought about what she said for, for days. I mean, it just it, it just kept going over and over in, in my head. And I thought about Dr. King. I went to Morehouse and I thought about uh, one of his speeches where he spoke about the country living up to its highest ideals. And I thought to myself, what are those highest ideals? Because you, you cannot live up to those highest ideals uh, of, of liberty and justice and freedom and permit these types of things to occur. They're incompatible. Uh, with, with those ideals. They're inconsistent uh, with, with those ideals. And so I think to see now uh, African-Americans joined by a lot of white Americans and, and other Americans of other races and creeds who are finally recognizing that we have a pervasive and underlying problem in this country that 
we have sort of overlooked. We sort of swept it under the rug. We knew it existed, but we went on about our daily lives. And I think we finally reached a point where people are saying, we can't overlook this anymore. We refuse to overlook this anymore. And we want to stare this ugliness in the mirror directly and, and face it. And I think that may be uncomfortable for a lot of people. I mean, I think that the, the highest form of, of reflection is self-reflection. And, and that is because it forces you to look at yourself and admit all of your flaws. It forces you to look at yourself and recognize we've gotten a lot of things wrong for a very, very long time. Uh, but the question is, once you recognize that, once you realize that, what are you going to do to fix it? And when I've been listening to a lot of the protesters, so many of my friends who are around my age have been protesting, some of them are actually leaders in certain places, organizing individuals. And I've seen some of their videos and I've been a part of some of the text changes. And it's, it's more than just a protesting. This is a part of the story that's not being told. People are actually saying these are the steps that we want to see uh, take place. A qualified immunity was mentioned. That is one such thing that people want to see changed. Uh, and so I think that we're at the precipice of something that we have not seen in this country for a very long time. It's more than marching, uh, raising grievance about something that we legitimately should raise grievance about. It's about trying to create structural change so that we don't see these types of things continue. And I think that's important. And I think we need to listen. I think we have to move forward together as a unison and, and create the type of change that's necessary. The reality is we're living in a country that's becoming more diverse. We cannot change those things. And so as that reality becomes more to the forefront, it's quite clear, at least to me, that some things that have been tolerated over the history of our country can no longer be tolerated anymore. If people are truly to be able to live in a country and, again, live up to those highest ideals that Dr. King spoke so eloquently about 50 or 60 years ago. Well, so, I mean, I definitely get a sense from that the, the four people on, on the pod this this week agree on on sort of the baseline <laughs> that I think a lot of people are talking about agreeing about at this moment. I, I want to play the skeptic, I guess, a little bit right here. Torre, why is it different this time? Michael talked about Freddie Gray. Um, we've seen, uh, we've seen what happened in Ferguson. Uh, we see what happened in Sanford, Florida. We've seen this happen in New York. This is not the first time. And as much as I pray that it will be the last time. I don't think we, any of us, really believe that it will be. What is going to make, why is it different this time? Why is this particular situation different? And, and if it isn't, how do we make it? How do we make it stick? How do we make sure people don't forget about this in three yeah. weeks' time? Um, um, yeah, well, I want to... Um Say I was very triggered by what uh, Sir Michael said, noting repeatedly how young he is makes me feel very old. <laughs> Don't really appreciate that. Sorry, I actually Torrey. even felt I even felt <laughs> old. Man, so you need to keep reminding <laughs> us that you're in high school. You know, it's okay. Okay, excuse it. me, everybody. Uh, Sir Michael is my son. So let's, <laughs> let's keep this in perspective here. Yeah, um, we're not ready to pass the torch quite yet. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, w what's different this time is, is that we have uh, a, a, a killing that happened very slowly. Um, when you have killings that happen 
rapidly, I think it has a different impact on people and the slowness um, and the clarity of the video of it and the, the look of indifference to life on the face of the officer with his hands in his pockets, not caring as people nearby said, you are killing him. All of that resonated very deeply and it resonated deeply in me. And then I saw Minneapolis is burning for a second night. Here goes the rest of the country. Here goes the rest of the world. Paris is freaking out, right? Paris, right? So the world is yelling back right now. So this one is louder and larger. And I've had that moment of despair of like, is this just going to be another name and a teacher? I remember, I think the third day, Oakland talked about we're going to Oscar Grant Park to protest. And I was like, Jesus, like, you know, we're going to the park named for the last one to protest this one. And in the future, we'll be going to George Floyd Park or George Floyd Street to protest the next one. You know, there is, you know, perhaps because we're in an election year, perhaps because this the volume on this is so loud um, there may be some differences. I would not be surprised if a if we see a sort of national, and it has to go piecemeal because most police forces are local, um, but a sort of national ban on chokeholds and strangleholds. I would not be surprised if that comes out of this because it is so clearly uh, at the heart of this moment. It's so easy to do. It's something that even Bill Bratton was on MSNBC saying like, I didn't realize that we still were able to do this. I don't believe him, but he's he's saying like, you know, why are we doing this? A third of the major police departments ban chokeholds. New York city is one that does not. Um, So we can do that. You know, and I'd like to see officers instead of taking a knee um, say that they, you know, pledge to no, no longer uh, choke people. Um, You know, will there be a difference out of this situation? I hope so. I can't promise you that there will. I hear Joe Biden saying, you know, systemic racism, use of force, you know, reforming police departments, you know, the sort of consent decrees that the Obama DOJ had out on many police departments, that sort of thing makes a difference when the feds go into a department and make changes within it. Um, but the federal government is only able to do that for a certain number of a single digit number of police departments. And there's 18,000 police departments in the country. Um, go ahead, Amy. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, Clay, you were mentioning that you're fearful that we'll see this again. Just in the past few days, video came out of a pair of police officers. I don't remember the city, you know, forgive me, but the police officer putting his knee on the neck of a protester, and the other officer had to push his knee off of the protester. And I watched this and I thought, what are they not understanding? What does it take to get through? Uh, that video, of course, also went viral. I think another reason, uh, you know, why this has, you know, uh, caught so much attention in addition to the video that we saw and the officers, you know, obvious indifference, smug indifference and, and 
really evil in what he did to George Floyd, was that it also came on the heels of an incident here in New York City in Central Park where we saw a woman calling uh, 911, the police, to falsely accuse an African-American man of attacking her. And we all saw that. So I think these things, you know, just in the past few weeks, they accumulated. And then when the George Floyd video hit, it was, you know, absolute frustration, certainly on the minds of African-Americans, but other Americans of other races got to see that this violence against African-American men in our cities runs the gamut from citizens falsely accusing them of of brutality to police, uh, you know, committing brutality. Why did wax replicants crowd an Italian church? And what do wax organs tell us about the history of medicine? Why does the Minotaur still intrigue us? And why would its bovine mouth crave human flesh? Hi, I'm Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Join us on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast for the entire month of October as we take our annual descent into a host of bloody, monstrous, and terrifying topics. From forest spirits that beckon you off the path to wax sculptors on a rampage, we'll be looking at spooky subjects all this month to peel away the flesh and reveal the underlying science and history and leave you with an even richer understanding of a world that's always weirder than we can imagine. What sorts of scientific concepts can we glean from episodes of The Outer Limits or Tales from the Dark Side? And what's the ghastly history and promising future of blood substitutes? Join us to find out. New Halloween-themed episodes publish twice a week, with older Vault episodes re-entering the world on Saturdays to spread around some of last year's grisly offerings. Listen to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On September 17, 2009, 24-year-old Mitrice Richardson disappeared without a trace in the woods near Malibu, California. She had been arrested at a beachside restaurant for failing to pay a tab and taken to the Lost Hills Sheriff's Station. You know, I mean, she's not from that area, and I would hate to wake up to a morning report, lost somewhere with her head chopped off. The police released her just after midnight with no car, no cell phone, no money. She doesn't know the area. She's never been in your area. Well, I think she's suppressed. That's what has me more that's worth you more than just her okay my trees disappeared into the darkness and was never seen alive again i'm katherine townsend host of the podcast helen gone we're going to try to find out what really happened to my richardson school of humans and iHeartRadio present helen gone season three listen to helen gone on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts one of the questions I asked last week that kind of got uh, an explosive response was, we I listed off several things that had happened. We uh, talked very, you know, mentioned the George Floyd uh, murder that had just happened. We talked very um, quickly about the Central Park situation. I mentioned the fact that on Twitter, people had asked, had, had essentially forced Jimmy Fallon to apologize for a blackface skit he did back in 2000 on SNL. And I asked the question, are all of these, we were trying to talk about Twitter last week, it didn't go there, but I said, are all of these the same level? Do they all deserve the same level of outrage? And of course, no one believed that, that any of that was near as bad as what George Floyd 
avoid um, what happened to George Floyd, but it, it ended up becoming a part of a conversation I've had with some friends of mine this week, and I've asked uh, some conservative friends of mine, did did the did the outrage did the level of outrage that was was shown towards Colin Kaepernick when he knelt for the national anthem, which understandably upset some people's patriotic patriotic sensibilities, but did that level of outrage was it should we have been at a ten there and had we not been at a ten or had some people not been at a ten for Colin Kaepernick kneeling? Might we not have had to see people go to an 11 um, for a situation like this? Are we? Do we have a problem, Michael, with folks um, being at a 10 too much <laughs> for too many things? Well, I, I, that's actually a very good question because it, it does it does rise to the, the the point of expectations. What is our expectation when these when these things are revealed to us? We see them, we hear them, we feel them. It, it goes to what Torre said about watching the eight-minute death of, uh, of Mr. Floyd. You spent that time in that moment. Uh, I would say if you missed the, the initial moment when Kaepernick knelt, by the time you saw it, there was all kinds of hyperbole around it right and left did not help that the the president of the united states immediately made it a you know a wrap yourself in the flag kind of moment uh where he you know politicized it um and, and sort of did the wink wink nod with his buddies in, in the um the, in the nfl ownership box and so it colored how people began to perceive the action thereby missing the underlying point that he was making, thereby missing that the action was, was recommended to him by a member of the military who said it's actually a sign of respect, not disrespect. It's what we do uh, with respect to a fallen comrade uh, and friend. So how our leadership begins to color these events uh, as we come into them, matters. And one of the advantages that we had as everyday people was that we got to watch the whole eight minutes. You didn't have to have it described to me. You didn't have to have a friend say, let me show you this 15-second clip. You watched it, and you absorbed it. And you were hit in the gut by it because you realized you were watching the death of a human being at the hand of an individual who did not give a damn. And so that visceral response that people have had to this, again, going back to my earlier point, relates back to generations of responses that we have had watching um, our family member come home after being water hosed by the police, attacked by police dogs, watching the open casket, looking at the open casket of Emmett Till. There was a reason why that mother left that casket open because she wanted the country to see what racism had done to her child, what your hate has done to my son. That's what that moment represented. So I don't, you don't get away this time with having to redefine it as the president has tried to do under the color of law and order 
under the color of, oh, you know, when the shooting start, when the looting starts, the loot, the, the uh, shooting starts. We get those racist tropes. We know what that means in, in our community. I was asked this evening by a reporter, when you hear that term law and order, what do you hear? What it tells me is I better get my ass in the house. Because some stuff is about to go down. Because that's how I grew up in Washington, D.C. When, when Nixon and others were talking about law and order, because we know what it meant in my neighborhood. So now we've reached a point where all of that has been condensed into such a hard knot in our gut that watching those eight minutes, you find the strength to say enough. And that's why I'm proud of this new generation. They've stepped into this moment and they said, without all of that other baggage, without all of the other explanations and, and the promises to fix this and the promises to do that, they're now demanding something that is going to hold not just police, but the country accountable. And that is what's going to be interesting to see in the next moment succeeding or after uh, we bury Mr. Floyd. Sure, Michael, why are there still people who don't want to believe or admit that there is a systemic problem of, of injust racial injustices within our social, within our criminal justice system. I mean, Rush Limbaugh went on Charlemagne the God's show this week and straight up denied the fact that there was uh, systemic injustice and racial injustice in the criminal justice department. Who are those people? Why are they not willing to see it? And is it, is it, is there any hope in changing their minds at all? I mean, I don't, why don't they want to see it? I mean, I, I don't even know if I can answer that, to, to be honest, right? Because I think candor would oblige even the most casual of spectators who may not be as knowledgeable on the black experience to acknowledge what uh, has occurred in our country's history what, and what continues to, to occur is shameful. It's, it's blatantly inexcusable and, and it can't be consistent with the type of country we purport to want to be. And so for people who who shamefully decry that these things just don't exist, I think they're they're being willfully ignorant. Uh, I, I think they're being primitive at best. I, I, I think they're obviously purposely trying to not acknowledge and admit what is before their very eyes. And I don't think I don't think you can ever change those people's minds. And I don't think we should, this is, God, maybe horrible to say, I don't think we should waste our time trying to change those people's minds. I, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I disagree. I grew up in the South. I've seen racism. I see it. I've had these conversations, tough conversations with people over the past week. And, and sometimes I think maybe you're right. We don't need to worry about those. Torre, is it worth the energy to try to change the mind of someone who is, is willfully ignorant and blind? Or should we just ignore that and, and move on to try to fix this with those who are willing? Um, whiteness is blind to white privilege and generally is not going to see it unless those white people take effort to learn and educate and become aware of it. But white privilege's general uh, mode is an unawareness of white privilege, just the way that a fish does not generally notice water. Um, it is 
dangerous to just purely ignore these people, but the effort to change their minds and teach them that they're wrong is Herculean. And, you know, one of the interesting things that I've noticed is that in my generation and Gen X, that, you know, when we were in college, we were younger, we would spend all this effort arguing with these people and trying to change their minds. And what I noticed out of millennials is that they, millennials, uh, black and brown millennials, that they will typically not do that. And they'll say things like, I don't really need to spend the effort doing the work to explain to you, like educate yourself. And I'm really proud of them for finding that space, which we did not find that space. We would walk away emotionally and intellectually exhausted these conversations um, with these sort of junior Bill O'Reilly's who are spouting this bullshit and like, you know, denying white privilege, which is obvious, you know, and denying white supremacy, which is obvious. And at this point in history, to deny those things is to either be deliberately obtuse or to be stupid. Uh, but, you know, you, you can't tell me that it's, that's not true, you know, and you can't point to like, well, here's a specific white person who has not succeeded. So that destroys the argument of white privilege and white supremacy. Like these are ridiculous arguments. Ignoring these people is not possible, but doing the work to change them is not valuable. Right. And it's not scalable. Um, and, you know, I generally tend to cut them out of my life, but also try to, work on making actual change in the world that will produce better outcomes for myself and other black and brown people. Clay, can I I jump in on on both those points uh, to address first the rush piece? Um, You know, the the level of of baldness to go on Charlemagne the God and, and say that goes to the heart of the white privilege argument, the, that ethos, whatever that is. Rush can say that it doesn't exist. It's not a real thing because he's never had to deal with it. He's never had to have a conversation with his a family member to, to alert them to the dangers of being white in a certain neighborhood or being white walking through a department store or being white going up an elevator, or being white sitting in a Starbucks. He's never had to have that conversation. He's never had to have that experience. So for him, because he's never had to have it, it must not have happened. It must not happen to anyone. You're just making that up. Because in the world I live in, that's not a real thing. I learned something when I was in the seminary Many years ago, choosing not to believe in the devil won't protect you from him. Okay? Choosing not to believe that there's racism in this country won't protect you when they show up in the neighborhood to demand you acknowledge it, as we see right now on the streets. Because that moment will come where you will have to confront it. The second thing is you can't change how people are raised because we can't, we, we sort of look at this sort of antiseptically as if there's, you know, there was something that, you know, this person uh, ran into or moment in their life. No, baby, this was how they were brought up. I grew up in the South too. I remember taking my aunt to work 
at a country club in South Carolina in 1982. And I went to drop her off and she said, no, nah, baby, you can't drop me off here. You have to take me around back. I said, excuse me? She said, I can't go in through the front door. And I, she pointed up and looked at the sign for white only, still up there over the mantle, 1982. Then you tell me the child that's born into that community in 1979 or 1975 or 1984 or 1986, what do you think they're going to be learning about black people? So why are we sitting around acting like all shocked and surprised that people have these attitudes? Where did they come from? That's because their mama taught them. Their daddy taught them. Who taught them? Who then taught them before them? So this idea, to Torrey's point, you know, of changing, you got to step off of that because you get to a point where you realize, I can't change how you were raised, baby. But what I can do is work with the next generation. There's also the value... Michael, there's also the value of whiteness that he is ignoring, that he seems to think that, you know, the success of himself and other white men happens because we worked harder, we were smarter, we were more effective. Whiteness is of value to you and puts extra gasoline and battery in your pack. And to not take it, to not notice that, to not realize the reason why you own your home is partly because your grandparents were able to own their home because the FHA gave white people loans, went 95%, weren't giving loans to black and brown people. My grandparents didn't own a home, right? So now the likelihood of me owning a home is less. My grandparents went to lesser schools. Your grandparents went to better schools. These advantages transfer through generations. But it's easy to not notice it. And part of what you get from the right-wing rhetoric of the Sean Hannity's and the Bill O'Reilly's and the Rush Limbaugh's is we work hard. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We don't ask anybody for help. That's what they do. And this is this is the, the value of whiteness. It's a strength. The, the whiteness itself is a self-perpetuating value program. But to well, right, I think, if you, hold, if you, on, you, yeah, hold on, hold on, I, I think I think also uh, part of what is blinding people like Rush Limbaugh and others to the reality is they say, well, we don't live in Jim Crow South anymore. There's been progress. I don't treat people this way, and I, I wouldn't support anybody being treated this way. And so, you know, progress is over. We've arrived. And, you know, not to put all of the uh, criticism and burden on the South, I grew up in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest, land of grunge and granola and crunchies and hippies and all of that. And I can tell you, I grew up with racist incidents directed at me, directed at my brother. And I can tell you, it shocks a lot of my friends. They can't believe it, particularly in this era, in Seattle. And I'm like, yes, in Seattle, it's everywhere. Uh, But something I must say that has been heartening to me in this conversation, uh, you know, following the George Floyd tragedy, is I haven't had to fight people to, you know, when they want to deflect the issue of police brutality and immediately go into the discussion of black-on-black crime. 
which you saw in so many other previous incidents of police brutality. Immediately, well, it's, it's still early, Amy. Right, it's still early, <laughs> it's but, but immediately you would hear, and I must say amongst conservatives, well, okay, that was bad, but why isn't anybody talking about black-on-black -black crime in Chicago? And my answer is because they're two completely separate issues. Police officers have the power of the state to take away your life and your liberty, and you know, often without any recourse. And you know, we talked about qualified immunity. We've talked about uh, you know the the methods of police enforcement that you know result in much higher levels of police brutality in the African American community. And as I've pointed out to conservative friends, if you think that police brutality against African Americans Americans is the same thing as black-on-black -black crime in Chicago. That means you think that the police are no but nothing more than a street gang. And if you believe that, then we have much bigger problems. I've seen the police behave like a street gang. This week, I have seen that with my own eyes in my own city. And I right. understand that there are there is a fringe community uh, that is part of the protesters who are taking the advantage to, to break into stores and to throw glass and break windows. But I have seen police uh, attack unarmed, peaceful protesters. I have seen police riot. So, I mean, like, you know, and, the, and we haven't yet turned this to a what about black on black crime in Chicago thing, but the discussion of rioting is the way of turning this to we don't need to care about what you guys are saying. You know, I saw Charlie Kirk early on. Oh, they rioted, so I no long they no longer have the moral high ground. And you know, I mean, like lots of people, especially on the right, saying that uh, there are people who are making this violent in order to delegitimize the protesters, including white supremacists, including undercover cops. Um, there are also people who are younger, many of them black and brown, who are taking advantage of the moment to loot, and that is horrible and, and unacceptable. Um, but there are also police officers who are turning these moments violent unnecessarily because they know that in many eyes, a moment that is violent, people will see if a protester and a police person, a policeman are fighting they'll say, well, there must be a justification. And I have seen with my own eyes quite often that is not that is often not the case. So let's let's get to that then, because I, I hear we've heard and we've heard several proposals from people over the years as we've been through far too many of these situations where people have discussed ways that we can prevent some of these things. Um, one of them is the discussion around taking away the prosecution uh, of violent police officers taking that away from district attorneys and prosecutors who have to work with that group of police officers in other cases uh giving it to a, an independent agency you've a few people on on tonight have talked about removing qualified immunity and allowing people to sue uh police officers both of those solve the problem of prosecuting or punishing those who have done wrong, but I don't know that they necessarily stop it from happening in the first place. Am I wrong? Um, or, or are there measures that can be taken to stop police from doing these horrible injustices in the first place? And what are those? 
Well, anyway. well, Clay, uh, yeah, last week I had a lengthy conversation with a friend of mine on uh, the New York uh, police, in the New York Police Department, uh, African-American police officer, and one of the issues that he raised was, uh, and at the time, it was, this is before we knew very much about uh, Officer Coven, and I, you know, I said to him, you just wait, we will find out this is not the first time he has used, uh, you know, brutal methods, and lo and behold, he'd had many more multiple complaints lodged against him. And my friend, the, the police officer, he said, one of the big problems is that police forces don't get rid of these people. And they, you know, after the first time, the first time should be the last time. But there are so many protections for police officers that engage in this behavior that they, you know, they're let loose on the streets to keep doing it. So I think that has to be one area where we have a that's, lot more focus. And that's a union thing. Torre, as, as, the, as a fellow liberal, are are Democrats missing an opportunity to to give here by perhaps saying this is a type of union that may not need to have as much power as some of the as some of the private sector unions? I mean, should Democrat did Democrats make a mistake by stopping people like Scott Walker from from diminishing the power of some of that public sector unions like police unions? Well, I mean, you know, as far as I can tell, the police unions are the last truly powerful unions in America. Um, and yeah, every time there is some police shooting or some horrible police behavior, we can count on uh, the police union chief to come out and scream with veins in the side of his head about how wrong the officer was and how horrible it is for what we've done to this officer. And police unions have been uh, a consistently... Uh, negative force, detrimental force in terms of blocking us from creating real police reform. We need sure, to... Michael. Ref- so can, can I just real quick... I'm yeah, sorry. Please. No, please. This is hysterically ironic that we're having this conversation at right. this moment. So on my network, just now, flashed up on the screen, it says police unions calling for aggression um, to fend violent officers as protests continue. Well, the so police to, union to, in Minneapolis, Michael, day, came huh? out and tried to. De- the police union president in Minneapolis this week came out and tried to demonize George Floyd and said everyone should. I mean, I'm not even going to repeat it. It was abhorrent, but he came out and tried to demonize the victim here. It's a. It's a typically a Republican something that Republicans want to do is diminish the power of. of labor unions like that. Is that not something that perhaps if Democrats gave in on that conservatives might be able to agree with them on? Well, I, I look, if they keep if they keep having headlines like this and and reactions and responses like the the union chief in Minneapolis, it, it won't matter what Republicans think or anyone else. The people will take care of that. Uh, you know, they'll that, get rid of that. They'll that, take that power away from them. They'll take they'll fuck the, oh absolutely you know how they'll take that power away from them they'll start on electing those officials that back that crazy. Well, that I mean, will, will, I'm, I'm going to get kicked out of my party for even suggesting it, probably. But I mean, one of the reasons that the, the, the contract with the city—I just learned this tonight—it blows my mind. But I did, I did, did fact check it. The contract with the city of Minneapolis that the police union has requires that 
the the police officer be given a readout of the of the event of what took place and then be given two days before they're even questioned about what right. happened. So one of the reasons two officer, days two days to get their stories two together. days to get their stories right. together. I mean, uh, listen, I'm gonna like I said, I'm gonna get get stoned here by by uh, fellow progressives for even suggesting that unions should be perhaps are part of the problem. But Lord, come on now, two days what? <laughs> I mean, no, of course, this union is part of the problem. Look, part of the issue is that uh, the expenditure for police is generally the largest expenditure that any municipality has, and they have extremely large pensions, so they have an extraordinary amount of power. Um, And part of what happens is that when you're a police uh, running for the head of the police union, the police are voting on who is the head of the union. And you're not going. You, you're not going to lose by saying, "I will defend every single one of you, no matter what you do." So, right, it, 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 so you know, it, it's not really, it's not really a left-right issue in this situation in terms of standing against this union to try to produce better outcomes for the citizens of a city. We have given the police too much power in terms of the way the unions, the prosecutors, and the mayors function to protect them. And we need to reel back some of the power. They work for us. We seem to forget that. They work for us, and we can lessen the amount of power they have. Sure, Michael. Sure, Michael. There is there is law, or, or there is the possibility of law to prevent unions from having power. I mean, I hate to be na- sticking on this point, but I guess what I'm, I'm reaching for from this conversation is some tangible things that can be fought for, and that seems I live in a right-to-work state. I live in the mm-hmm. least unionized state in the country. Teachers and public sector um, employees aren't allowed to unionize in the state of North Carolina. So I, I, I guess, are there not ways to actually codify some of those protections that that don't allow certain certain protections for police officers beyond just qualified immunity. I mean, you should. I mean, when you think about it, uh, Clay, to answer your question, I mean, it's almost as if police officers are exempt and beyond contempt. And you and you brought up the Republican Party, how you would presume that this it would be a natural position for conservatives to take to say that we want to minimize the influence and, and the power of any union, for that matter, regardless of the interest or the group that it serves. Uh, and that is not the case. And I would argue that the reason that that is not the case, at least for Republicans, is because police officers. It's a big base for the Republican Party. If you look at the fraternal order of police uh, and you look at their political contributions, they do give to a lot of conservatives who are very strong on the whole law and order message, particularly those in the South. And so if you're you're talking about this from a policy perspective and how do you create policy that doesn't create a paradox, I think you have to look at the Republican Party probably more so than the Democratic Party and that would mean you would have to have structural changes where you're changing out elected officials who don't feel that they have such a tie to the, to the unions or such a tie to law enforcement where they would be then willing to say we are going to pass legislation at the local level at the state level and perhaps even at the federal level where we're going to say that we need more transparency or we're going to decrease the level of power that unions have and I think there are various mechanisms that the federal government state governments and local governments could do to, to, to enforce that you could decrease budgeting um, you could decrease the length of, of contracts. I mean, there are a whole lot of different ways, just throwing out ideas that I think po- that legislators could potentially consider and debate 
to, to make this process more transparent. So in turn, when officers do act badly, they can immediately be replaced. And, and number two, we want to make sure that we're just not hiring crappy officers to begin with. I, well, you know, there, there, one thing that we need to have is, a, and, and criminologists talk about this, a national database of fired officers. Because it is far too easy to make a mistake, a huge mistake on the job, and go to another police department. Um, partly because most police departments are have about 12 officers. So it becomes very easy to, say, to sort of say to others, like, yeah, he was good over here. You can trust him over there. So there's a lot of hopping around from department to department because of that. You know, that actually sort of reminds me of, uh, you know, the Catholic sex abuse scandal of yep. priests being moved yep. from, you know, parish to parish. You know, I, I want to, I do want to stress that law and order is a bedrock of any society, any city that we can all live peacefully. But when we, you know, look at the, the at police's, their function is to serve and protect. And we seem to forget the serve part of that formulation. And we, we certainly need policies in police unions that put the focus on service and not just replace police officers who, you know, commit abuses, fire them and penalize them. And the database idea, I think, is a terrific one, not just for keeping them off of the streets in other cities or locales, but as a method of shame that you don't want your name on that list that the public can see. Michael, you've, you've, um, it's interesting to me. I think we, I think most people, most reasonable people recognize that we want to have the, we want everyone to have the ability to have their voice heard and, and to be able to protest for as long and as late as they can. But I think most people, most reasonable people all agree that looting um, and burning down buildings is not necessarily an effective way to get your message across. However, um, Senator Lindsey Graham, um, who heretofore has been pretty quiet on issues uh, like racial injustice in the police in the criminal justice system, came out um, in the last day or so and said uh, and talked about how he had had a conversation with a uh, with a pastor in his state um, and how he had learned. He said, "quote Don't reach into the glove compartment if you get your ID. Keep your hands on. Um, that doesn't happen in my church." He said, "So there's a problem here, and we've got to get to the bottom of it." Roy Blunt, a the Republican senator uh, from Missouri, who's in the Republican leadership in the Senate. He said, you know, with my sons, the discussion has always been, if you get in trouble, find a policeman and they'll solve the problem. Um, but he acknowledged that that's not the case in the African-American and black community. He said, quote, that's a different kind of America. And I think people are understanding that those protests make sense. I, I read those to ask this question. If we have seen so many other situations where unarmed black men were killed by police officers, and protests took place and did not get this type of response from Republicans in the Senate. Is rioting, is looting, is burning down buildings in Minneapolis, has it worked? I, no, I, I would not. I would not place uh, their responses necessarily at the foot of the rioting. I think that um, as an explanation, folks may want to do that. Look, there, there was there was outrage and outbursts after Ferguson, certainly after Baltimore. Um, again, I go back to what makes this so much 
more different is just the hardcore in your face reality of it. And, and then you couple that with the voices that they hear from the protesters, um, dots are starting to get connected. So, yeah, I guess in one sense you can say the rioting, the rioting gets your attention. Um, but I've also heard from, from some folks that run in those same circles, you know, that that rioting is, you know, the reason why the police need to be more aggressive, et cetera, et cetera. So they still don't seem to get the, the fundamental point. Uh, about how all this needs to come together. So, hold on, say, say, we're in the month of June. This is not the month of Stonewall. I mean, like riots do make a difference. And to to think that don't come to me. Damage, I asked the question. I didn't have an answer well, for no, it. I don't I'm know saying, if I agree dude, or disagree. <laughs> no, but I mean, like to suggest that property damage and physically fighting back doesn't have some level of value in bringing attention to your cause and getting people to say, damn, they're really serious. We better do something about this. Uh, you know, marching, peaceful marching gets you only but so far. I think at some level, power will only uh, give up some with a true demand. And when people are... Does it invite the other side to riot next time they believe their guns are going to be taken away? But, I mean, but, are we but, saying, but hold okay, on. that's fine now? But hold on, let's let's look at actually the historical uh, effect of rioting. And historically, it's actually been counterproductive, and it's led to yeah. politicians being elected who want more aggressive police, police with freer hands to impose law and order. And we also know that rioting and looting, ha it, it destroys communities, it reduces investment, it reduces economic development, and it can devastate a community for years and years to try to hey, rebuild. Real quick on that point, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and for 40 years, a part of my neighborhood was left unattended after the 68 riots. So to your point, Amy, that's exactly what happens. They walk away from it and the community is left in the aftermath because the politicians don't want to touch it. The business community has moved out and the community is left after the burning and the looting with nothing. And I don't think that that is is I don't think that that is the result that anybody wants. And uh, right. just uh, you know, just this week, a very brave woman who worked in the Obama administration um, as a press aide, uh, her name's Desiree Barnes. Uh, there's a video, uh, you know, that's been cir circulating. Everybody can watch it. And she was down in the East Village, and she pointed out to the looters. She said, "You're burning down this neighborhood, and these this is public housing here. These are homeless people who go into." that bank to recharge their cell phones who need all of these business and services. And she said, these, this isn't corporate America down here. These are real people and real lives that are destroyed, you know, long after you've left. Um, you know, we're coming to the end here, and I, I, I'm <laughs> sort of fascinated because when we started, one of the things that I... I that's why I love all four of you, and I'm so happy that you agreed to come on this week, because one of the things that I didn't want to do in, pre in the past two or three weeks, we've noticed that we tend to fall down this rabbit hole with people, no matter what the topic is, the the 
subject always turns to President Trump and one side saying he's perfect and one side saying he's horrible. And I said before we started recording, I said, I just want to make sure that we don't focus the entire time on President Trump because this problem was here before President Trump and it will be here after President Trump. And I want to make sure that the conversation is able to discuss the problem itself without having to make it about President Trump. So, God bless. I love the four of you because we didn't do that. But I do want to take a second <laughs> to to actually bring it to him myself, which is rare. Um, and just as we're as we're starting to wrap up here, discuss his role or his leadership or his lack of leadership. Uh. And and well, some people may dis- listen. What's nice is this group is not all agreeing. Um, on everything, but everyone is. I think. I, th- I think on this point, you'll find unanimity. Actually, there you go. Everyone should have their moment. So let's take it. Go ahead, Torres. The president has been great at signaling to the police, and not just even signaling to being overtly telling the police, "Please be violent." He has been uh, great at at signaling to white supremacists. You know, I stand with you. And the FBI a few years ago said we have a problem with white supremacists in uh, uh, flowing into police departments. Right. So the white supremacists in police departments are hearing from the president that it is okay to be violent. And just the president's general attack and disrespect for black bodies and his warriorship for white privilege and white supremacy sends the message that it is okay to be violent uh, and disrespectful toward black people. He creates this whole culture um, to say nothing of the very specific and horrifically disgusting uh, tear gassing uh, and attacking of peaceful protesters so that he could walk across the street to a church he has never visited to have a ridiculous photo op. Uh, you know, disrespecting Americans, exercising their rights. I mean, like, just, it's just so, it's so, it's so gross. It's so sure, Michael, gross. Is that, a, is that a fair assessment uh, as you see it? I mean, look, I, I think Trump is not a good leader. I think he's a bad leader. But what I think he is good at doing is leading us to a bad place. And I think when I think about leadership, I think about, you know, being a president and, and you sort of assess Trump. Uh, and you compare him to other presidents or just to good leaders in general. And I often think about what is he trying to accomplish? And, 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 and it would appear to me that he has been rather successful at accomplishing his aims. And I don't think those aims are in the best interest of, of, of the country. I, I think he has a certain set of goals that he has in his mind that the people who support him wants to see. And I think he's been damn good at bringing those things to fruition. And that is problematic to me because it, 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 it really does sort of make you question our institutions. It makes you question our values. It makes you question the things that the, the supposed checks and balances that are sup- supposedly in place to prohibit this type of an individual from ever even ascertaining the highest office in the land. And I would argue that they've all failed. They've all failed. Michael, has he succeeded at all, perhaps, in galvanizing people in swing states or moderates into believing that if you put Democrats in charge, they will let they will let 
rioters burn your cities? I mean, is that going to be a potentially effective argument for him in places like Wisconsin, Arizona, uh, that were leaning towards, have been leaning towards Biden, but, uh, but may now be listening to his message of see what happens when you have Democrats in charge? Is that, do you think that could be effective at all? I, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, not to the degree that I think some in his orbit may may hope or or believe. Um, the, the, the entire political environment has changed uh, in the last six months, and it is continuing to change with each passing day uh, since uh, last Monday. Uh, COVID nineteen uh, reshaped the, the political narrative because it took down the economy. It took out jobs uh, and it weakened people uh, at their knees, to their knees uh, in terms of their health. So there's that. And then, of course, this the political environment that this is all taking place in, uh, where you have the intersection of race uh, and, and police and, and all of that. Uh, it's going to be hard for him. And that's why the law and order cry that we heard this week from the president is largely falling on deaf ears. Um, there, the, the day afterwards, there were people who said, I really you know, wasn't getting behind this whole protest thing. I didn't feel about that much about it. And then the president did the law and order thing, walked across Lafayette Park, and I'm here today. So it's having a different effect on people because of how we're starting to internalize all of this. And was taking a step back from it um, and putting perspective on it. And I think it's going to be hard, a harder sell to the point that both my friends just made um, about uh, for the president to, to go out and, and sell something that I think more and more people are buying less and less of. I got to say, that I, I, I gives me hope because I'm sitting here in a very purple state and and I love my city and my state. But Raleigh, we are a boring city and that's what's great about us. Um, but we had a lot of trouble this weekend um, and some pretty violent um we we had a we had a lot of trouble on Saturday and Sunday night, and my concern has been that there would be people in this state who saw it as a uh, as a this is this is how progressives this is how Democrats handle things, and therefore I'm going to move to to support the law and order president. So I'm as as a Democrat, I'm very happy to hear you say that, Michael. Amy, what you think? Well, yeah, taking it out of sort of you know Democrat versus Republican, President Trump's approval ratings are at an all-time low and the lowest of any first-term president in, you know, measurable history. Uh, so his message has not been working. And I Americans have seen him, you know, fail at his, you know, number one job of leadership and unifying the country. And they're seeing that that is not a part of President Trump's natural DNA. His natural DNA is to find an enemy and set himself up against it. And that is precisely the the wrong thing that we read we need right now and in terms of swing states clay there's already polling coming out finding that joe biden is uh, surpassing uh, donald trump in those swing states now it's june and anything can happen between now and november but i think president trump's uh, failure in this moment has registered with a lot of voters 
Okay, well, um, we, we usually do a, a longer quick-fire round at the end. I want to make sure I get in at least one question for each of you from our listeners because they do send them in, and uh, I, I've loved this conversation and have skipped over some listeners' <laughs> questions in order to do it. We'll start with Amy. Sharon from Newark uh, asks, do you support troops on the streets during violent gatherings? I think that if a city needs to call in the National Guard, that can be, that's completely appropriate. I was uh, disgusted when I woke up Monday morning and I saw that the Lincoln Memorial had been defaced. I mean, how historically illiterate are the vandals who did that? Uh, so in terms of protecting Washington, D.C., uh, I would support the National Guard, maybe light military protecting those monuments, certainly not uh, committing violence against uh, our fellow citizens. Uh, but we, we saw today Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, I actually worked with him in a Senate, Senator Frist's office when Senator Frist was majority leader. And he came out today and he said that he opposed uh, using the military. Now there's been some back and forth and conversations at the White House. We'll see how that all uh, shakes out. But I think in very you know limited circumstances, particularly Washington, D.C. and the monuments, that it could be appropriate. And the National Guard, certainly, if uh, those city mayors feel that they need uh, some reinforcement to keep the violence down. Michael Ian from Milwaukee asks, how should the police deal with unauthorized militia groups enforcing their own version of the law? Um, look, I, I think every, the president was so quick and swift to, to declare Antifa as it once, you know, the attorney general declared Antifa as a terrorist organization. All right, that's cool, fine. But what about these militia groups? What about the KKK? What about um, these white nationalist organizations? Um, that's how you, if you're, going to, if you're going to be honest about the process of dealing with these issues, then let's put on the table all the players that are in the mix. You just can't say that, oh, well, these folks who are anti-fascist are terrorists, but the people who tell Jews to go to hell and death to black people, et cetera, et cetera, they're okay. Or, or sorry, they're good people on both sides. Um, no, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. So that goes to the core of how we begin to address these issues. As we focus on the police, as we rightly should, we also need to focus on those ele other elements in our society that perpetuate this. Going back to the point I was making earlier about you know, how, how people are raised. Um, and, and it does make a difference if the society decides that this is not tolerable. We, know, we don't accept this. Um, and that there are penalty points if you engage in this behavior. What the president is basically saying is that, you know, we want to focus only on one side of this equation, not the, not the other side. So I would say to him, well, aren't there good people on that side too? So, you know, the, the reality of it is the words that he uses and the way he talks about these things is designed to create the kind of confusion where the clarity has to come in is from us to make it clear what we're demanding. And part of that demand is everybody, everybody gets called out. Torrey Madison from Denver asks, how do we keep the looters out of our protests? Um... That's a great question. If you could you solve know. this question, that'd be great. You know, if you I'm could not, solve yeah, this problem not, for all of us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. You know, um, there's only a certain number of police officers that are going to be uh, available in any city. I think that there's far too great a police presence 
watching over peaceful protests and the the suggestion or the expectation that peaceful protests will turn violent uh, leads to an over-policing of places where peaceful protesters are. If you started with the assumption of like, those people are peaceful protesters, so we don't need a major force guarding them, at least not constantly guarding them. You know, police are mobile. So, you know, even a big city like New York, they, they, they can move quickly from one area to another. So, you know, if a situation gets out of control, we can push a button and everyone come here to the 88th precinct or the 12th precinct or whatever. But focus the notion on those people are protesting peacefully. So we don't need, uh, you know, a, a 10 person to one cop ratio. Right. And, and we can have cops be in other places uh, guarding against looting, which is not happening because of the riot, because of the protesting. They're taking advantage of the moment of the police being uh, stretched, stretched thin, the police resources being stretched thin. But um, uh, if the police, I would redeploy the police resources, assuming the peacefulness of the protesters until they prove they're not. That was, I think you might have answered it. You might have solved it. Uh, Sure, Michael Lacey from Nashville. Anonymous is back. Is that a good thing? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I guess yeah. it depends on what they're going to reveal, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't like, have I, any more I, skeletons, I, so I don't care. <laughs> I, I, think, look, I think anytime uh, government is in government and individuals of power are being held accountable by transparency, I always believe that is a good thing. I, I don't think democracy survives if we don't have transparency. I, I don't think democracy survives if you cannot challenge power structures. And you challenge those things to, to, to make them better. I don't believe you challenge them to flip the system completely upside down. And perhaps that's the conservative side of me coming out. Uh, but I don't think it's a bad thing. People should know what their leaders are doing in the dark. You've got a new podcast coming out yourself, Sure, Michael. Where can we I hear do. that? I uh, do. It's going to be launching next week by Ricochet. And actually, um, we're going to be wrapping up our, our last interviews tomorrow um, with, I think, Ben Crump and Lee Merritt to talk about uh, this case. Uh, and so people can find it on iTunes and all of the other places. It's titled Speakeasy, and that episode should be out by the end of next Friday. Speak easy. Oh, great! And uh, uh, Amy, you just did a you just did an interview with um, Reverend Jesse Jackson, yeah, for Develtavolka. Very good pronunciation, Develtavolka. <laughs> uh, I didn't conduct the interview, but I helped edit it and uh, connect our magazine with Reverend Jackson. And you know, he with his long history in the civil rights movement, and you know, having lived through so many of these uh, convulsions, he had a lot of. Uh, insights and i encourage everyone to go to weltvoche w-e-l-t-w-o-c-h-e dot c-h it's our cover story and i think you'll find it fascinating we'll make sure to have your social media links and all that stuff at politicon's thank uh, you website and on instagram same for you sure michael too where can where can michael Steele? we see we can see you on tv uh most every day where else can people follow and listen to for what you have to say well, you can check out my podcast, the Michael Steele podcast. Yeah, original thinking there. Um, but uh, it's it's really good. I've got uh, a great interview coming up. I'm looking forward to it with Angela Rye to sort of deal with this intersection of society, culture, politics, and, and all of that. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that coming up. And um, 
Certainly on MSNBC, where I, I tend to hang my hat uh, quite a bit uh, <laughs> these days, uh, talking uh, the latest crazy in the world. And there's plenty of it. <laughs> Toray, the Toray Show, um, we can also find in all those same places uh, that people get their podcasts. What else, what else can we look for from you? Yeah, uh, Toray Show comes out every Wednesday and Friday. We've got a great one with Toray McKesson right now um, that just came out today. And we're going to have Maxine Waters coming out very soon. And I also do a podcast that's a little more political-focused with Danielle Moody called Democracy-ish. So uh, check that out as well. We had a great episode today with uh, Allison Lane, a D.C. protester who was chased out of a protest with a few hundred other people, hid in a regular person's home, just saw them in D.C., saw them running down the street, that he said, come in here. He hid them in his home for about eight or nine hours. Police tried all these different things to try to get them to come out. Finally, in the morning, they were able to leave unarrested. She's back at protests now. Incredible story. I saw that. I saw that briefly in the paper, and I am definitely going to come listen to your your episode because I'm fascinated by that. Why didn't the cops just let him leave one at a time? The cl- cops clearly were just looking to arrest people for what for sport. Is that what we're uh, for um, to intimidate people? That, you know, they I'm are gonna... not. They're not interested in being critiqued in this moment, right? We're mm-hmm. saying you are not doing your job well. They're not interested in hearing it. That's democracy-ish. Yes. Correct. Okay. Listen, I can't thank you guys enough. I mean, this is a this was a heavy week for all of us to to watch, um, for some of us to to see, be a part of. I know Torre, you've been out. Um, it, it's it's a conversation that I hope we can do again at some point. Um, I'd love to have the same four of you back, maybe because I want to make sure. What what concerns me most is that that this will happen again because we will not take advantage of the moment to really get some of those tangible things that we talked about here a little bit tonight done and that and that people will not have those exact tangible goals to work for so that we can we can actually take it make make sure that George Floyd's name is not just a, a place that we protest um, on a street named after him at some point. And, and I, I, I fear that this moment will pass and people will forget because this country has got a whole bunch of mess going on and people's attention spans are short. And I hope that we can maybe do this again um, with the same group uh, soon and Clay, continue the conversation. I can say... I don't know what you can say because you're breaking up. <laughs> Give me hope, Torre. Let's get his signal back. <laughs> no, no, just as you were telling me things were going to get better, Torre, you broke up. Where'd he go? Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. That's right. Oh, God. Well, thank you for very much. I don't know what happened to Torre. Um, I feel Thanks, like I hope, that's, I hope that's not a sign that he was going to say something positive and then all of a sudden maybe it, maybe, maybe it was anonymous <laughs> <laughs> oh god <laughs> listen thank you so much thank you guys um, for those of you who are listening please send questions comments and whatnot at Politicon on Instagram and Twitter at Politicon on Instagram and Twitter and uh, you can email your questions to our, our guests um, every week at podcast at politicon.com um, and uh, please look for all of our guests on social media and please look for Torre wherever he went um, <laughs> <laughs> everybody have a good night 
I cut out, but did I make my did I make my whole comment? I think I did. Oh Jesus! Um, I, was, I mean, like black people are not going to forget this moment. White people may forget this moment, but this will continue to live on uh, in the hearts and minds of black people. So the question is whether or not white people will remember this. On September seventeenth, two thousand nine, twenty-four-year-old Mitrice Richardson disappeared without a trace in the woods near Malibu, California and was never seen alive again. I'm Katherine Townsend, host of the podcast, Helen Gone. We're gonna try to find out what really happened to Mitrice Richardson. School of Humans and iHeartRadio present Helen Gone, season three. Listen to Helen Gone on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know you. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.